0: Welcome to Troubleshooting Innovation, a commercial baking podcast, sponsored by JLS Automation, a leader in hygienic primary and secondary robotic packaging solutions for the bakery industry. I'm your host, Joni Spencer, Editor-in-Chief for Commercial Baking, and I'm spending this season with New Haven, Connecticut-based Chabasso Bakery, a B Corp certified commercial artisan bakery. We are visiting with various members of the team to explore their journey of becoming a certified B Corporation and how this bakery is using its business as a force for good. In this first episode, you'll meet Charles Nagaro, Jr., CEO of Chabasso Bakery, as we delve into Chabasso's values and practices. Hi, Charles. Well, can I call you Charlie?
1: Yeah, please do.
0: (laughs) (laughs) How are you, Charlie?
1: I'm good, Joni. How are you doing?
0: I am great. Thank you so much for joining me for this season of our podcast. I'm really excited to take our listeners through this journey.
1: Well, thanks for having us. We're really excited to talk about it.
0: So, I think the first thing we need to do is talk about what a B Corp is. So, I just have a quick little definition certified B Corporations are for profit businesses that have met the highest standards of verified social and environmental performance, public transparency, and legal accountability to balance profit and purpose. And they're certified through B-Lab, which is the governing body of B Corporation certification. Before we really get into how you became B Corp certified, I want to Sort of take this episode to get to know you and your bakery because the truth is, and correct me if I'm wrong, but a company doesn't just wake up one morning and decide to become a B Corp certified company and then figure out how to make it happen from there, right?
1: Yeah, totally. So it's been kind of like a 15 year process for us.
0: Exactly, exactly. So the first thing I want to do is take a look back at the history of Chabasso's core values and practices to see how you were operating with these values that align with B Corps and then see how the certification process flowed from there. Let's take a step way back in history and talk about how Chabasso Bakery was born from Atticus and how it has grown into the company it is today.
1: Sure, totally. So my dad started this business or businesses... In 1975, <clears throat> my dad was a lawyer who there probably aren't many people who are more mismatched for that profession than there are my father. <laughs> it took him, I think most of his adult life to figure out that he was really an entrepreneur, and he ended up buying a used bookstore for the basically the price of like the inventory that was going out of business and it was called Atticus, and the name Atticus actually comes from the first publisher, first Greek publisher that published the works of Cicero. Oh wow! And um, so it's it's actually not Atticus Finch. First fun fact. Um, and so the the used book business was a great thing to be in in the 70s and early 80s. <laughs> yeah, used books, not even new books. And in 1981, they opened a bookstore cafe in downtown New Haven and inside the British Art Center, which is a a Yale building. And that was like the first building in downtown New Haven that kind of started to transform this city. It's also a concrete box. It's a museum. So it doesn't have any kind of fit outs for like baked goods or a kitchen, no hoods. So to make this thing possible, we always had to have this like little offsite kitchen that was staffed with Yale art students or spouses or partners of of Yale students or Yale professors. We relied on this creative energy of all these people. And that really was this foundation for Atticus. And then that turned into Chabasso in about 1996, because we were baking bread for our retail stores. And my dad had the idea of wholesaling it. And Chabasso is the combination of the names of me and my two sisters so it's Charlie Abby and Sophia. I love that. Yeah, still remember this day in 1990 something where we sat in our kitchen and my dad was like, I want to name this after my three kids and we all figured out the name and it all just kind of came together. It was a fun little collaborative family moment
0: That is so awesome and you know I did always assume that Atticus was named after Atticus Finch so already I've learned something right out of the gate. <laughs>
1: Yeah, we'll come up with t-shirts or something.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You should have, it says Atticus, not as in Finch. (laughs) So Charlie, you have sort of a a lifelong experience in this family business with both Atticus and Chabasso. I met you a few years ago, and I remember when I visited Chabasso. At that time, your main involvement I think you were the owner of Atticus at that time. The day I met you, you were doing some R&D and tinkering around with some Atticus bread in Chabasso's Bakery. I remember there was this little mini R&D space inside the plant. So from a baking standpoint, how did you get involved in the business and how have you kind of grown that? Because I think you have a really interesting story to tell.
1: Yeah. It's like there's this giant rubber band attached to me as hard as I've tried to run away from the family business and New Haven. It's the further I've gone, the harder it snaps me back. My sisters love to remind me of that. So (laughs) I had done like summers making bread and even now it's hard, but like back then it was like really hard and I kind of liked it. I kind of liked the flow that comes with doing something hard all day, but it took me a long time to actually fall in love with bread probably because I grew up with it. I started working in the family business in 2006. I did the Chivasso thing from 2006 to 2016, from production to COO. I had this experience of going to the bread lab out in Washington. And I remember kind of going out there with this thought in the back of my mind of like, you can't change the world by baking bread. (laughs) (laughs) And then seeing all these people out there who are like actively changing the world by baking bread. I think the first kind of like moment you could call an epiphany was like actually standing in a wheat field and never having done that, even though going through like 25,000 pounds of white flour a day. You know, I didn't even know what the wheat plant looked like or what milling was. And uh, it kind of shocked me a bit. And that, among other things, led me to think back to all these wonderful things that I grew up with at Atticus that all the creative energy was producing and that had all kind of gone away. And I spent three or four years from 2016 to 2019, just working over at Atticus, just the retail store in New Haven and had the opportunity to try to kind of bring that stuff back while layering in this newfangled idea of fresh milling specialty grains, and maybe even trying to grow them in Connecticut. And then in 2019, had the opportunity to start to run both of those businesses. So I think that's probably right when we met each other, which seems like yesterday and 10 years ago. Sometime. Right.
0: <laughs> so, yeah, I just, I mean, I love that story. And I'm glad you talked about your experience in the Bread Lab because I knew that was sort of a pivotal moment for you. I remember you telling me that story. And I think it's really important to put it in context with how Chabasso makes bread and goes to market. So this bakery, Chabasso, started with this mission to make good bread in a town that's known not only for its intellectual culture, of course, with Yale, but also food culture. How did that lay a foundation for the principles of quality bread that you still live by today?
1: Yeah, I think we we always get the question of like, because New Haven's famous for pizza. Mm -hmm. Um, And to some degree, Lender's Bagels, too. Lenders started in and around New Haven.
0: Yeah, that's right. Mm
1: -hmm. And I grew up eating Lender's Bagels. And, you know, everybody asks us, like, is there something special in the water that makes New Haven pizza, New Haven pizza? So I think that's like part of the background. And, you know, New Haven's very fortunate that it has Yale in the backyard the amount of different people from different backgrounds and different cultures and different countries that it brings here it is a melting pot
0: i feel like being located in a highly intellectual community has to sort of help feed your desire to create something that's a little bit more complex than just we're making loaves of bread and selling it there's just sort of higher standards in the area where you are do you feel like just from a culture standpoint it helps your perspective in how you want to change the world by making bread.
1: Wow, that's a great question. Yeah, so there's definitely like when you have other people around you doing incredible things, it raises the bar significantly. When you go to school with people who are children of, you know, relative geniuses, it raises the bar quite a bit. And then there's that it's there's just an expectation of yeah, you know, when you have a multicultural, extremely international group of customers, like people move here from San Francisco and live here and they, you know, expect a certain thing. I think there's a lot of uh, incredible creative influences and then just like an expectation.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, and what you're making is definitely artisan bread, but the definition of artisan can be highly subjective. And my visit to Chabasa was one of my first lessons in that. I remember the story I wrote, and I think I even opened it with beauty is in the eye of the beholder and artisan is in the eye of the bread maker because there are so many factors that go into what makes an artisan loaf. For Chobasso, one of those factors is the people and the principles behind your bread making process. So how do those support your definition of artisan bread?
1: Yeah, totally. So we've had to come up with our definition of that, like a buyer or somebody we're giving a tour or trying to like do that whole, like, this is why this is worth this amount of money. Like this is the value in this sales pitch. Uh, yeah, we've had to define artisan in some simple words, but it, like you're mentioning, it's oh so not simple. But it's the dip, for us on a manufacturing side, it's the differentiation uh, between like the time and temperature between what we do and what you know you call kind of like a no time dough. So you know we're using a lot of pre fermented doughs. We have long bulk fermentation times, and that's hugely challenging in terms of getting extremely high throughput, finding machines that work with this process. So like since the beginning in the nineties, like putting in machines for some level of automation has always been, yeah, like this isn't for this, but it kind of works. So like, let's put this thing together with this thing and you have to like enjoy that process. And then the the day-to-day operations of it and how it interacts with the staff is just everything. If your team doesn't understand that like everyday things are going to be a little different and like the desired outcome is collectively making something that's special, it's just not going to work. And they have to kind of get that This thing is a challenge and there's some creativity involved, but it's also like a very well-defined process. And to get your team really believing that you have to value them, respect them might sound kind of like, duh, but you really have to listen to them. You know, it can't just be, this is how we do things. And that fundamental collaborative approach starts so many conversations between you as a leader or any leader in the organization and the team, that it creates a culture. I guess in some part, probably when we first heard about B Corps 15 years ago, it was like, oh, this makes a lot of sense.
0: I loved your transition from automation to how the people are still important and you're in an automated process. So you're doing it a very specific way and you're doing it the same every time and and an artisan bread, like you have to have certain parameters for the process to get the finished loaf the way it's supposed to be. But what are some of those times where you've been able to sort of brainstorm with the staff and give them a voice of, I think we could do it better if we did it this way?
1: Yeah. The funny part is like, they come up with those things on their own, (laughs) you know, (laughs) You just kind of have to stand there and watch how they're doing something, and you go, "Oh, how did you think of that? <laughs> like, what do you did, show me what you in a very non-accusatory way, which is really tough? It's like, why are you doing it that way? Um, they're like, because it works better. It's like, oh, okay, so yeah, but please tell me more so I can like make sure everybody does it that way. Like the days where it comes out perfect are almost worse than the days where it doesn't come out perfect. <laughs> you're you're like, wait, what did we do right? <laughs> Because when you do it wrong, it's like real obvious. Like, okay, we know what we did wrong. Like we forgot salt. We forgot yeast. We overproofed it. It was 85 degrees in the room today. The air conditioning failed. The points of failure are so much easier to identify than the points of like success because perfection, whatever that means, is the combination of like 10 different things going right at the same time. So those things come from your staff doing something on the line with a mixer or with an oven that you never would have thought of.
0: I really saw that when I walked the plant floor those years ago. There is this element of collaboration in your bakery. And I think that's why Chabasso's story is about way more than just the bread and how it's made and, and who it feeds. Troubleshooting Innovation is brought to you by JLS Automation, a leader in automated bakery packaging solutions. Simple and easy-to-use primary loading systems, cartners, and case packers. Fill labor gaps while keeping your bakery products safe. Compatible with various sustainable packaging materials and formats. Gentle product handling from raw dough to fragile pastries and all the way to sandwich assembly. Enhance worker safety while reducing waste. When performance of your bakery line matters, JLS provides innovative solutions that help make your business a force for good. Learn more at jlsautomation.com. I'm gonna kind of shift gears here for a second. Your dad, I remember he told me a story. (laughs) He told me lots of stories. That's one of the greatest things about your dad. But he has always believed in in doing good beyond just making good bread. And he's always seen purpose in the bread making. And he told me that if he had three wishes for making the world better, one of them would be to have healthier kids and to start that with how they're fed. I feel like That's sort of a defining element of Chabasso as a bread manufacturer. And I think that that is not atypical of bread manufacturers because I think there are a lot of them who feel that way. But I think it's um, very different than what a consumer would assume a company that makes bread in a factory. (laughs) They would not assume that a company would feel that way. Can you tell me how it's been that defining element as a manufacturer?
1: Yeah. Yeah, so my my dad is um he started this business when he was 50, the bakery business. So he he started a lot of things late in life, including a family, and his brain is always thinking about how much he can kind of affect the things around him, his community, his family, and sticking around to see as much of it as possible. <clears throat> so he's always like, yeah, I'm going to live for another 30 years. So from the very beginning, we were really focused on like not bringing in the wrong ingredients. You know, look at the back of some loaves of bread or any kind of food and the ingredient lists are long. You know, just the process of like bringing in enzymes like 10 years ago was like, what are these? Do we want to do this? Does this change who we are? We, meaning like the business, debated it. So... You know, there's these things that you're actually kind of making me think of for the first time in a long time that were very foundational in who we are. And those enormous experiences affected our day to day and started to then turn into other projects and ideas my dad had for the community and the bakery. And my mom starting a garden out back where she just planted like. Twenty by forty feet of tomatoes, and then I had to deal with the consequences. <laughs> that started New Haven Farms, which ended up being a um, a diabetes prevention program in cahoots with a local health clinic that would prescribe a share from the farm, which was much more than our backyard at that point. And um, part of the prescription from the primary care physician would be, you get vegetables every week. We'll teach you how to cook. I remember a local chef was like, this is a kohlrabi. (laughs) Here's how you cook a kohlrabi. And uh, you had to sew up. You had to do some work on the farm, which was just a urban little thing. And you had to kind of get schooled on nutrition. So those little initiatives that my dad started turned into a lot of different things in and around New Haven.
0: Wow. Wow. The thing that's so cool is that it wasn't just your dad living out his values. It has translated into the business and it's grown and it's become something very organic that now you are carrying on. And so now I kind of want to shift the focus back to you, Charlie. You talked about that first time you stood in a wheat field and the impact that it had on you and how you've carried that through your passion for bread making. And now you're pretty involved in local, state, and regional agriculture. So can you kind of talk about your journey in how bread making is running much deeper than the production process from an agricultural standpoint and a community standpoint?
1: Yeah. So it's, I know you asked about me, but it's to have a bakery making bread Successfully and profitably and also be mission driven is the job of many, many people, you know, without people like Reed and our VP of operations and supply chain, Rich uh, and many, many others, you know, it just isn't possible. You can't run a bakery with all that's involved in that and kind of be off gallivanting in wheat fields and being like, oh, look, how, look how amazing this stuff is. It tastes so good. be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We have to, to make a truckload of bread right now. So it's, uh, it, you know, it's a work of so, so many to like, take that, believe in it and carry it forward. It's also a very interesting kind of journey and process to go from like an operating role to, a a CEO role where you're going from, you know, that operating of a manufacturing plant to a here's who we are, here's what we do, here's why we do it. And it's a fun and interesting shift that is super challenging and again, impossible without the right people. The first thing that started me really down the path of growing interesting grains really clicked with me and with us was they actually taste better. Yeah that there's, we're leaving not just flavor on the table, but uh, no pun intended, but leaving nutrition and so many more aspects of things that we can be including in our food. I unfortunately a lot like my father, so I tell a lot of stories, but there's this really, I guess, moment after coming back from one of the trips to Bread Lab and having gone with him to like a barley field and learning what barley was and learning what malt was and that the malt industry is just very singular in what it produces. And someone made this like specialty malt and put it in vanilla ice cream. And it tasted like all sorts of different things. And I was like, wait, did you put pineapple on this? They're like, nope, that's the malt. It's like, okay, cool. So we're definitely screwing up. We're missing something. Why are we as a society like accepting these flavors that people are giving us that just like aren't that great? That's really what gave us the mental support, (laughs) confidence to come back and say, okay, we're going to try to grow grains, especially grains in Connecticut and see how it goes.
0: And how is it going?
1: (laughs) It's really hard. (laughs) So this was like a pre-pandemic project that started, happened, failed a couple of times, restarted. And um, the wonderful thing that we've experienced in the last five years of working together, Reed and I, is we start these little projects and someone usually goes, yeah, that's a great idea. I'm going to go do it. If we end up being the instigator of one good thing, we're more than happy with it. Right before the pandemic in October of 2019, uh, we did our own little bread thing out at Yale called Brain Gab. It brought together a whole bunch of people. Again, Reed did all the work. And out of that, someone else carried the torch and has started like a a Northeast Grain Alliance. They had a mill, they had a molt house that's been growing. And if we had a tiny part in playing in, I won't say incubating that, but like pushing it or nudging along, we're extremely happy to have that happen. We'd love for someone in Connecticut to start a mill so that we can continue it. You know, part of the process also with us, with growing wheat in Connecticut was Connecticut's got a lot of farmland. And the primary output of that is actually flowers. Right behind that is feed corn for cattle that makes commodity dairy. If you've ever known a dairy farmer, you've known that they probably work 70 hours a week, don't get paid a lot of money, and die young. There's lots of farmers out there that are dying for something other than what they're currently doing. They don't know what to do and they're relatively risk adverse because they're right on the edge anyways. It worked pretty well for us. What we have learned is we really want to help support people who are already doing something and that's where CT Food Launchpad has kind of come in.
0: Let's talk about that. I I think the work you did with the Connecticut farming was sort of pre-pandemic, but then CT Food Launchpad came... After the pandemic, right?
1: Yeah, it 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 happened when we went to go open our second retail location, and um, man, I give my dad like a lot of a lot of flack for having like forty two ideas before breakfast. Um, <laughs> and um, you know, in retrospect, it's like, wow, I'm, I should probably stop making fun of him. Was, uh,
0: <laughs> that's why I'm sitting here giggling.
1: Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so we we right before like March of twenty twenty, we signed a lease for a second atticus in New Haven. It, it in of itself was a crazy idea, but it meant that we had about like eight months to kind of like figure out what the heck we were gonna do with this twenty five hundred square feet. And we'd been talking to the city of New Haven and the state of Connecticut, and they were they still are and very supportive of incubating food businesses and startups. One of the very popular ways to do that is a shared kitchen or kitchen spaces that people can rent for a food truck or a or a small food business. And we thought, okay, we'll go and do that. We'll make that part of this 2,500 square foot little thing that we're also going to put a bakery in and we're going to have like a big commercial kitchen and a grocery store and we're going to sell stuff and we're going to do coffee and, 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 and. <laughs> we needed to kind of evolve that idea that pretty quickly flipped over to okay instead of renting our space to other people we will help folks make something and get it to market and sell it for them so we we started to make baked goods for sanctuary kitchen which is a nonprofit in New Haven that helps refugee and immigrant women who cooked at home get a job now that they've landed in a new life wow yeah and they, so they do that through catering. It's a great model. It makes a lot of sense. so we started making a baked good for them, selling it in our retail locations and then giving them a percentage of those sales. you know so all they have to do is come and show us a recipe, we'll scale it up for them and make that happen
0: Nice.:
1: yeah, so that like we're like, okay, this checks a lot of boxes. We don't have to really do anything new. we're just using our existing staff, we don't have to like manage outside groups, and that worked not like hugely impactful. It's not like all of a sudden you're selling significant quantities of this to, to fund a nonprofit. Yeah, Uh, of course. uh, So, and then it, throughout this, we had other people coming to us and saying like, Hey, can you help me make not a baked good? Like, can you help me find a co-packer for a hot sauce? Like, um, sure. We'll try. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and, after that, it evolved into okay, so there's people who have market ready products that they're selling at a farmer's market or through an online store or through their kitchen, and they want to take it to the next step. They want to take it to Whole Foods, they want to take it to another retailer. We're like, oh, this is what we do all the time. We go to retailers and say, like, here's our stuff, let's do this. We, having talked to these startups, remembered that process of like, Oh, these are very different skill sets that you need to be developing as like a person in your kitchen. It's like, you have to learn how to make this stuff. You need to learn how to package the stuff. You need to learn how to sell it and do accounting and do a business plan. And, and then you need to learn how to like go to a retailer and distribute it and sell it and make it and make it food safe. So it's like, that's something that we do all the time. So let's try to help local businesses do that so they don't have to learn it. Like, why have 10 local food startups go and learn this thing when we already know how to do it? And we can just, they can focus on what they do best, make this really special hot sauce. That's what CT Food Launchpad is now. I and mean, it seems like it's that's what it's going to be for a while. We, again, Read has helped... Um, uh, there's a Ghanaian hot sauce called Oshido that with our help has gone through with two retailers and is now carried in stop and shop.
0: So this concept is amazing and that you've turned that space sort of into a training and education facility for startup food brands, right?
1: Yeah. The space is virtual. Okay. It's Reed and I coaching might be a little, um, self-aggrandizing, but active listening to folks go through the things that we've gone through and telling them that it's going to be okay (laughs) when they're struggling with a growing business. And probably accidentally, it has worked out perfectly because our new location is also a little micro grocery store. So if I had my druthers, I would spend all day long shopping for small, cool food items and merchandising them on our shelves. And it fits perfectly with you know, identifying emerging products that we think we can help grow. It's stuff that we sell, that we believe in, and then we can take to other people and and hopefully help them expand.
0: That's amazing. And there is such an explosion of emerging brands right now. The space can get a little bit crowded for new brands. And so many of them, like you said, they don't know sort of what they don't know and need help Getting kickstarted, I guess, and so I love Launchpad is such a perfect name, and what a cool point of evolution for your company. Because when I looked at the CT Food Launchpad website, it does say that it's powered by Atticus and Chabasso. So it, it seems like you're using both companies for good, as you typically do.
1: Yeah, and it's uh, you know it's like you have to find things that you find are fulfilling for you and for other people to really believe in them and make them part of your culture and make them stick. We've never been the best at putting like a sentence or two around like, who are we? What do we do? Why do we do this? You know, the vision, mission, kind of uh, wordsmithing sessions of yesteryear are where I always found kind of like personality tests. It's like, this is just like, this is going to change tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) But we've we've gotten there through our actions, and it's it's also part of the reason why I loved B Corp when I first heard about it fifteen years ago at this like r- random seminar I just happened to go to because it gives you the words and roadmap to make sure these things that you're doing are clear to yourself and others, and that they stick around.
0: Yeah, and I've heard that so many times and it's kind of what we started this conversation with, that you don't just wake up one day and go, you know what? I think I want to be a B Corp. Let's look and see what it takes to become that kind of company. Right. You uh, learn about it, and then you look at that process and that checklist and realize, hey, this is like how I've been living. This aligns with how my company operates. So, Is that how it was for you, for Chabasso?
1: Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, I think there's probably people who do want to utilize like the B Corp name and what it stands for, for kind of aspirational growth, either honest aspirational growth or, or non, but it really should be a tool that feels very familiar. So it's a 280 question process where you have to go through and score a minimum of 80 points to qualify as a B Corp. You know, even the most forward thinking companies who are already doing good struggle to score 80. So the, the questionnaire in and of itself is like part of the process to go, Oh, okay. So here's some things that I'm like kind of doing, but I need to do differently or more formally to qualify us to get these points. You're not going to make it through that process the four or five times that we had to do it to to get yourself to where you need to get to.
0: Yeah. And you know what? That is exactly what we're going to talk about next week. We're going to really get into the nitty-gritty of how you navigated the certification process and what exactly it took to get there. But I've loved loved this conversation because I feel it was really important to let the audience know who you are and that, you know, just like you said, getting that certification, I mean, that questionnaire is long and it takes a lot of self-reflection and you have to kind of already be moving in that direction. So I've really loved just hearing this story of Chabasso and how it came to be and who you are as a company that fits into what it means to be a B Corp. And over the course of these five weeks, we're gonna look at the process to obtain certification. Then we're gonna talk about how you operationalize those values on the bakery floor. And then B Corp certification, you don't get certified and then it's done. You have to keep improving and get your recertification. So I wanna dive into plans for the future and then finally finish with what the secondary benefits are for being a B Corp. So that's kind of what the lay of the land is for the next few weeks. But next week, we're going to talk about that process and bring Reed into the conversation to really hear those details. So I'm looking forward to that. But for now, thank you so much, Charlie, for spending uh, this time with me today.
1: Well, thanks, Johnny for giving us the opportunity to talk about it. It's been great.
0: And I will talk to you next week.
1: Talk to you next week.
0: Thank you for listening to the Troubleshooting Innovation Podcast, and a special thank you to our sponsor, JLS Automation. For more information on JLS and its hygienic robotic bakery packaging solutions, visit JLSAutomation.com.